Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, Episode 7. Alfred and the Fight for Survival. As the more experienced listeners among you may have noticed, we are now following broadly the same topography of the original episodes, written back in the days of my youth, in 2011, but adapted and made fuller where I feel the need. We have arrived, gentle listener, at the life of the only English monarch to be called Great, by his English subjects, noting that I think Knut gets a great, but not from us, the ones he dumped on, but from the Danes who did the dumping, as it were. But enough of dumping. I think we should start the story of Alfred the Great by looking at his reputation through the ages, historiography, if you will. Now normally, or at least very often, this presents the opportunity to talk about the various twists and turns of his reputation. So for example, like those who decided that in spite of losing half his patrimony, sparking a baronial revolt and ending up a vassal of the Pope, King John was actually a spiffing king to be deeply admired. But really, there is no such controversy about Alfred. It's not that people had dissed him or praised him. At most, it's more that different ages have represented him in different ways, emphasised different bits, as it were. This in itself is pretty remarkable. To even a king so admired as Edward III, even he had a hard time at the hands of the Victorians as something of a feeble giveaway when it came to royal power. But not Alfred. He, in the main, just has things added to him to support the viewpoint of the particular period. So nobody lost any votes by praising Alfred. Though I suspect Alfred is no longer quite as famous as he once was. Views of Alfred are coloured, however, that if you consider Alfred the greatest of English monarchs, which on balance I probably do, by the fact that we also have to accept that he's the monarch who had the greatest ability to control his own propaganda. We're in a period when there are really very few sources, and yet suddenly with Alfred, hey presto, suddenly there's a glut of sources. I say glut. The early modern historian would weep with despair at the feeble collection it presents, 
but the glut, such as it is, is largely due to Alfred himself. In particular, but not exclusively, we have The Life of Alfred by Bishop Asser, an Alfred enthusiast without parallel. We have the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which doesn't bear the words Alfred made me, but was in all probability started by Alfred. Then we have the most remarkable collection to fall back on, which we will not have again until Henry VIII, writing by the king himself. So, later in life, Alfred decided he didn't have enough to do fighting the Vikings and saving the future of the English-speaking world. Alfred looked back and reflected on a golden age of Anglo-Saxon learning where the knowledge and use of Latin was common, and lamented that all that had gone. So, in a way, his work of translating some famous religious works from Latin was an admission of the less-than-perfect Anglo-Saxon kingdom and his desire to improve it. So we can make some inferences from the works he decided to translate, but more directly, Alfred wrote prefaces to some of them, such as the preface to Gregory's Dialogues, Gregory's Pastoral Care, and Boethius's Consolations of Philosophy. Now, it really is quite a remarkable treat. In these prefaces, we hear his own voice from all that time back. The evidence of Asser and another commentator, Bishop Wilsiger, would suggest that Alfred's contemporaries admired him as much as later historians would. However, there is just a suggestion that the generations following would not admire Alfred quite so much. I'm not suggesting anything as strong as criticism, oh dearie me no, just that to look for the perfect model of kingship, maybe Anglo-Saxons looked elsewhere. In a secular sense, it could well be that the heroes referenced most were Egbert, who broke the Mercian hegemony, or Athelstan, who could first convincingly be called King of All England and broke the power of the Celtish nations at Brunanburh, and Edgar, who made the same row him down the River Dee and who reformed the practices of the church. But actually the Anglo-Saxons were also terribly picky about their heroes and they preferred something a bit more saintly. And so actually it was Saint Edmund, the martyr we spoke of last week, who was preferred as an Anglo-Saxon saint. When the Anglo-Norman historians of the 12th century came along, they did Alfred proud, by and large. I speak of the likes of Odoric Vitalis, William of Malmesbury, Henry of Huntingdon, Florence of Worcester. You'll enjoy those when you get to them, particularly William. But despite this, the Norman kings were not moved to elevate his status. They too preferred royal saints, and so it was Edward the Confessor and again St Edmund the Martyr who appeared beside Richard II on the Wilton Diptych, for example. Then why with Edward III, I have to say? Why select a pair of losers as patron saints? Anyway, around this time also you get the addition of the problem that besets Alfred. Folks want to use his unchallengeable name to help their own cause. So it's in later medieval times that Oxford University, for example, claims Alfred to have founded a college there, entirely spuriously. That's very Oxford. However spuriously, it demonstrates that the position of Alfred in the Pantheon was safe and growing. There are a set of medieval English poems called The Proverbs of King Alfred, for example. And with the Reformation, the fact that he wasn't a saint no longer held Alfred back. On the way, the Normans were beginning to come in for a bit of stick, which is always a good thing, so Alfred's learning was a good example, it was said, of the pure 
Anglo-Saxon religion before the Romish Normans came along. Archbishop Matthew Parker published a new edition of Asser in 1574, though naughtily he added the burnt cake story. Seriously, Matthew, for shame. And Alfred makes an appearance in Fox's Book of Martyrs, which was a phenomenally successful piece of publishing, of course. It's now in the 16th century that Alfred finally acquired the cognomen Great, so it took a while. From then on, Alfred is constantly being held up as an example of something for somebody. Robert Powell produced a biography in 1634, trying to squeeze Charles I into Alfred's mould. Fat lot of good that did him. John Spellman's biography was dedicated to Charles II, presumably for the same purpose. Alfred was held up to the Hanoverians as a model to follow, and by the time we get to the Victorians, it's enough to make you weep. Barbara York puts it nicely when she wrote, Alfred was fast being rediscovered as the most perfect character in history, and alongside his defence of constitutional liberties, his country and true religion, was added renewed admiration for his Christian morality and sense of duty. So Alfred was no longer simply a model for princes, he was a model of virtue for everyone and held up to be so by numerous Victorians, including Charles Dickens, as it happens. And along the way, the curse of the Normans came in for more punishment as unconstitutional tyrants. Barbara York, again in the same article, also quotes the 19th century Whig Prime Minister Lord Rosebery as he unveiled the statue of Alfred in Winchester. Alfred, he said, would only be an effigy of the imagination, and so the Alfred we reverence may well be an idealised figure we have draped around his form all the highest attributes of manhood and kingship. Now, it's normally at this point, or it is for monarchs later in the history of England, that I say something like, but modern historians have pointed out and launch into a diatribe that demonstrably proves that everyone in human history is either a pile of poo or just like everyone else with good points and bad points. But not Alfred, would you believe? Not Alfred. I mean, don't get me wrong, all the layers of Victorian varnish have been stripped away fine, but the essential quality of Alfred remains as a pretty shining example of a king who saved his people, transformed their prospects in many ways, more than simply holding back the Vikings. The most controversial debate, actually, has been not about Alfred himself, but about his biography by Asser. In a rather remarkable debate in the late 90s, Alfred Smith published a work saying it was a fake and taking a slightly bitter pop at the Oxford University establishment at the same time. Although opinion seems to vindicate Asser's life, it does illustrate one of the problems about Alfred. In some ways, he's not a terribly sympathetic figure. Again, normally at this point I'd launch into something about eating small children for a late morning snack or something, but with Alfred, it's more about a rather hypochondriac neurotic characteristic a terribly medieval tension between the life carnal and the life spiritual, which causes Alfred a mental anguish which at times is actually physical. The problem is that Alfred was forced to be a war leader and warrior throughout his life, but you get the very strong impression that if he'd had the choice, he would have chosen a very different life in the church, devoted to God and to learning. But he clearly also had a strong sense of his duty and responsibilities, which he accepted with energy and intelligence. He was not always successful at war, especially in the early years of his life and reign, but in the midst of a 
desperate fight for survival while everything around him burned. He was the only Anglo-Saxon leader who developed a strategy and a vision, who realised that something had to be done differently. He was a man under enormous pressure, of course, not only from this struggle for survival. From the age of 20, according to Asser, he was in constant pain, probably Crohn's disease, which gave him continual gut pains, vomiting and periods of weight loss. Yet despite this, his is an eminently reasonable and considered voice, if maybe somewhat oversensitive and very religious. He was intensely serious and acutely conscious of the responsibilities of his office. In one of those works he translated, these words seem to reflect the flavour of the man. I desired to live worthily as long as I lived, and to leave after my life to the men who should come after me the memory of me in good works. I have to say, there were probably not many laughs on Alfred, and he might not be in my list of the top ten monarchs to go down the pub with. That prize would more likely go to a Harold Godwinson or a William Rufus. But without doubt, he would be high up, if not top, of my list of five English monarchs. Anyway, we'll hear much more about Alfred over the next few episodes and have plenty of time to decide just how great he was. Broadly, you can split the reign of Alfred into three phases. The first is the struggle for survival. From 871 to 878, Wessex is subjected to a wave of attacks from the Vikings which threaten to snuff out West Saxon independence and therefore probably the future of an Anglo-Saxon state. The second is a period of reconstruction and reform where Alfred prepares and strengthens the West Saxon state up to about mm, 892. And then the third seems that reformed state tested in the fire of renewed Viking attacks. So, with no more ado, let us get on with the first of those three phases. Last time we left Alfred in something of a pickle. Actually, the year had started rather well, with a victory in January 871 of all months at Ashdown, which seemed to bode terribly well for the West Saxons. By this stage, by the way, we appear to have lost both Ivar the Boneless and Ubba, neither of whom are mentioned again. So it appears to be Halfdan who led the Vikings at Ashdown. But it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that despite all the talk of a great victory, of the death of a Danish king and five Jarls, that Ashdan wasn't actually quite the triumph it appeared to be. After all, the West Saxons were then forced to fight two more battles, both of which they lost. Having said that, neither are the West Saxons forced from the field at this point, which suggests again a series of running skirmishes going on here, or raids. Then came April 871, and the death of King Ethelred, and the arrival of reinforcements for the Danes and the great summer army. The leader of this new contingent is almost certainly a Dane called Guthrum. Remember Guthrum, he will be with us for a while. Within a month, Alfred took his army further west into Wiltshire to a place called Wilton. Unfortunately, Alfred made a poor start as a king in battle, actually. Taken off his guard by the speed and mobility of the Vikings, he and his men were surprised by the Danes and soundly defeated. During that year, they fought nine battles and countless skirmishes, but in the end, it was too much for them and they were forced to buy peace from the Danes. But... They had survived, 
and they still had their own king. And they had made the Danes fight hard for every inch, and at Ashdown at least had shown that the great heathen army was not invincible. It is at very least a completely different story to Northumbria and East Anglia. The Danes retired to the ostensibly Mercian town of London, and for the next five years Wessex had a sort of uneasy peace and the chance to rebuild, though in contrast to Alfred's later reign, there's no great evidence they used that time particularly wisely. The Danes were distracted because they were having some difficulty with their conquests elsewhere. Their puppet king in Northumbria, Egbert, was thrown out by his English subjects, and Rixiger established an independent Northumbria again for a short period. Although the Danes went north, they failed to get rid of him, and in 873 they came south again and had a go at Mercia. Burgred, the king of Mercia, has an unfortunate historical record. All we know of his 22-year reign was that he asked Wessex for help to deal with the Welsh, that he was defeated by the Danes in London, and paid tribute to the Danes for the privilege of seeing them make free with his town. So, it's unlikely he was feeling confident when the Danes came his way in 873. If so... He was right. Burgred was driven from his kingdom and fled to Rome, where he was to die in exile to be buried in the church of the Saxon quarter. So passes unhappy Burgred from our story. We might suspect at this point, with a major Danish army in the field for over eight years, that they were here to stay, to create their own kingdoms. But as yet, they'd not followed through on that threat and for the moment the Danes continued to follow the puppet-king approach, despite their problems with Egbert in Northumbria. They installed in Mercia, Churlwolf, described by the Anglo-Saxon chronicle as an unwise thane or foolish thane. Churlwolf had the clear instruction that if the Danes wanted anything, he was to give it quickly, completely, no argument, even if it was in fact mm, his kingdom that was being asked for. So this was an indication that if the Danes weren't yet ready to settle, they probably would be soon. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There is an interesting wrinkle at this time. Note that Ivar the Boneless is supposed to have died in Ireland in 873. Now a powerful symbol of Viking dominance is that the Vikings occupied the traditional Mercian spiritual home at Repton. This was where the Royal Mausoleum was. It was where the Church of St Wigston was, 
St Wigstam himself an ex-Mercian king. While they were there, the Vikings wrecked the place. The church and mortuary chapel were damaged, burials dug up, the monastic community abandoned. And the Vikings threw up a D-shaped enclosure, cutting through the Anglo-Saxon churchyard and scattering the bones. And they buried their own in their place, some of which are very grand indeed. According to a 17th century record of a dig, one of them contained a stone coffin nine foot long. Around this figure were buried 100 skeletons, arranged all with their feet facing towards the stone coffin. More recent investigations have found that more bones were stacked around this coffin and four young people sacrificed before the tomb was sealed. The archaeologists speculated that maybe this was Ivar. Whoever it was, he was certainly an important Viking leader. Anyway, if Hafdan and Ivar were the class of 66, it's now time for the class of 77, in the form of three kings, Guthrum, Oshitel and Anand. Their arrival in the Chronicles coincided with the splitting up of the Danish army as Hafdan headed north and Guthrum took his part of the army off to Cambridge in East Anglia, where he stayed for a year doing we know not what. Plotting, ravaging, pillaging, that sort of thing. The normal, according to the Viking idiom. Hafdan spent two years engaged in expeditions against the Picts and Britons of Strathclyde further north, but with little practical result. And in 876... He brought his men back to Yorkshire and finally turfed out the English king, Rixiger. Rixiger managed to hold on to the northern half of the ancient kingdom of Northumbria, called Benicia, if you remember earlier episodes. But that was not enough for him, and we are told that he died of a broken heart and was succeeded by Egbert II. The independent English kingdom of Benicia survived for another 30 to 40 years before being finally overrun. And so Dara between the River Humber and the River Tees became at last the focus of Danish settlement, with the most concentrated settlements in the county of York, or Jorvik in Danish. But it's possible that the settled life was not for Hafdan, and it could be that he headed to Ireland and was killed in 877. He certainly passes out of our story at this point. Meanwhile, Guthrum and his two business associates had designs on the last independent English kingdom. Yet again, the Danes proved the benefits of their superiority at sea. Alfred probably expected an attack from the north as before, but instead he suddenly found that Guthrum had landed on the south coast at a place called Wareham in Dorset. Alfred rushed off and eventually caught up with him and promptly came to another worthless agreement. We rely quite a lot on Asser, of course, as a primary source, and Asser proudly tells us that the Danes swore on their holy amulets a more holy oath than ever before, that they would leave Wessex. Right, so they didn't do that then. Instead, they gave Alfred the slip by a night march and headed for Exeter in the southwest, planning to be reinforced by another Danish contingent from the sea. But at this point, at last Alfred had a stroke of luck and the Viking reinforcements were decimated at sea by a storm. With the Vikings now bottled up in Exeter, and without the numbers they expected, the extraordinary happened. When Alfred came to an agreement with them to leave, wonder of wonders, they actually left, and departed Wessex at its northwestern edge near Gloucester. Incidentally, I have no doubt that in a century or so, we're going to be spending much time and effort 
castigating Ethelred the Unready for spending lots of Danegeld and continually buying off the Danes. But we should note that it is at least extremely likely that Alfred is also buying the Danes off with cash with these treaties. The sources we have are largely Anglo-Saxon, so they put the very best gloss on it, but the reality is that the Danes have the initiative, the Danes have the confidence, and the English fighting to survive will do pretty much anything to get them out. At least later in his reign, Alfred was to find a more effective approach. Once they were out of Wessex, Guthrum and the Danes in their frustration turned to Mercia and cashed in their chips with Cholwulf. Mercia was partitioned, with the north-eastern segment going to the Danes and the south-west staying with Cholwulf for the moment. The Danish segment became known as the five boroughs, Lincoln, Nottingham, Derbyshire, Leicestershire, and a territory based on Stamford. While this was all going on, the Danes had maintained a force at Gloucester, and when winter arrived, Alfred and the Anglo-Saxons could breathe a sigh of relief and gather their strength for the spring. After all, the Vikings never broke their winter quarters, so they were safe for a while. But this year was to be different. In the second week of 878, the Vikings stormed out of Gloucester and marched and occupied Chippenham. The English forces scattered like leaves before the Viking storm, and it almost seemed as though this is what they'd expected all along, that in the end the Vikings would destroy them. Surely they could not win. Some fled the country completely. Others gave their submission at last to the unchained Viking horde, and Alfred himself was forced to flee into the wilderness. The Danish wolves gathered. Ubba Ragnarsson, brother of Hafdan and Ivar, returned to England, landing with 800 men in Alfred's rear in Devon, looking to cut Alfred off and isolate him. The English appeared to be finished. What came next was, in the words of Sid Widdell, the greatest comeback since Lazarus. Alfred was trapped with his closest thanes in Athelney Marsh in Somerset. The Viking army was in total control, and a fresh army had just landed. But the comeback started at a place called Countersbury Hill, where a group of Alfred's thanes besieged, burst out and defeated the Danish force led by Ubba. Alfred spent seven weeks in the marshes in Athelney, and gradually his confidence and that of his followers returned. He fortified his position. He organised raids against the Vikings. This is the time of the legend of Alfred and the Cakes, and the time when Alfred reflected on his kingship and what he needed to do to make Essex safe from the Danes again. In the translation he wrote of Gregory's pastoral care, Alfred wrote in the preface this. For in prosperity, the man is often puffed up with pride. In hardship, he is forced to reflect on himself, even though he be unwilling. The words raise the image of Alfred reflecting in the marshes on how he could respond better to the challenge that the Danes presented. And during those weeks, Alfred used the structure of the Kingdom of Wessex to gather his own strength. He sent messengers out in all directions. They went to the aldermen, thanes and lords throughout the shires. They also went to the hundred courts and meeting places where they could address all the people. A short word of explanation is needed here about the structure of the administration in Wessex and it's something I'll come back to in a later episode in more detail. But for the moment, suffice it to say that the aldermen were the king's administrators. 
each was given a shire to manage. Each shire was divided into territories called hundreds, and each hundred had a court. That hundred court did more than administer justice; it was a meeting place and a means of communication too. The meetings were often held outside, so that everyone could be there and hear. The point for now is that there was a ready-made way for the king to communicate with his people, and that's what Alfred did through March and April of eight seventy-eight. Alfred had earned himself the time he needed in the marshes. In the spring of eight seventy-eight, he rode to a place called Egbert's Stone, a site named in memory of the greatest king of Wessex so far, and he raised the people of Somerset and Wiltshire and Hampshire. He then marched towards the Danish camp at Chippenham. The Danish army came to meet him, and battle was joined at Ethandoon, at a place now called Eddington. It was a battle for the soul of Wessex. The Battle of Ethandoon has to be up there as one of the most decisive battles fought on English soil, along with Hastings, Bosworth, Naseby. All we know of Alfred's most celebrated victory is from Asser, fighting ferociously, forming a dense shield wall against the whole army of the pagans. And striving long and bravely, at last he gained the victory. He overthrew the pagans with great slaughter, and smiting the fugitives, he pursued them as far as the fortress. The last time the English had won a major battle was Ashdown in eight seventy one, which was a little suspect, and anyway had done little to hold back the Viking tide. So why was Ethandoon so different? The answer probably lies in numbers, with the loss of Ivar and Halfdan, the leaking away of Danes to settle, and the defeat of Ubba. The truth is that the Vikings probably had far fewer men than they needed to conquer Wessex anyway, and they lacked the force they needed to follow up their success at Chippenham. At Ethandoon, it could well be that the English outnumbered the Danes significantly. But whatever the reason, after Ethandoon. Wessex never again stood in the kind of danger it had faced in January eight seventy eight. The Danes fled back to Chippenham, and Alfred followed. This would seem to be the logical time to batter the Danes again and drive them out of the country, but instead Alfred treated with them. This time it was a very different kind of treaty, with hostages only being given by the Danes. The treaty between them agreed that the Danes would leave Wessex and defined the boundaries of the lands of the Danes and the English. The treaty is also known as the Treaty of Wedmore, and is available on the website, of course. And then three weeks later, Guthrum came to Alfred's royal estate, where he and thirty of his chiefs were baptized, with Alfred standing as godfather to Guthrum. Converting the Vikings to Christianity was important to Alfred, and it's a tactic we see taken elsewhere. For example, by King Charles the Simple and his troublesome Viking Rollo. Alfred was probably doing it. Partly for the good of his soul and the immortal soul of the Danes, but he would also have been looking to build a longer-lasting peace by encouraging the Danes to share the same values as the Anglo-Saxons. At the same time, by standing as godfather to Guthrum, Alfred was emphasizing his moral and political ascendancy. By eight seventy-nine, Guthrum had moved back to East Anglia, removed the puppet king there, and was ruling the king directly. He became king of all of England, north and east of the old Roman road, Watling Street, which runs from London to Chester in the northwest, and south of the Humber. The Vikings were by no means finished with Wessex, 
but despite an abortive invasion later that year by a Viking force from the continent, for the moment, they'd been halted. The first phase of Alfred's reign was over, and Wessex had survived. The fifteen years of the great heathen army transformed England. It finally broke down the system of the four English kingdoms and established the circumstances that led to the creation of a unified English state, based on the success of just one of those nations, Wessex. England had come very close to being completely overrun, but it's possible, as I speculated a bit last time, that its greatest weakness was also its greatest strength. The fact that England was broken down into four kingdoms in the 9th century has led to some to argue that the response to the Danish invasions was weak and uncoordinated. Then it's true, we see very little cooperation between the different English kingdoms, and in fact each one was sometimes very willing to pay the Vikings to move off their patch and go and pillage another one. But the division might well also have been England's saving grace. Okay, it's not quite as simple as this, but essentially in 1066 a single army was to end the unified Anglo-Saxon state in just one battle. With Harold dead, resistance quickly came to an end. But the great heathen army had to contend with four independent kingdoms, and each one of them had to be subdued. By 878, even though three of those kingdoms had fallen, one still remained to fight on. Alfred could now turn his attention to rebuilding his kingdom. Over the next four years, Alfred was to put fundamental reforms in place. His reforms would cover all aspects of the English state, the law, military, trade, religion, learning. And when the next Danish onslaught arrived in 892, they would face a very different kingdom, much better organised, stronger, and rightly more confident in its ability to survive. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. Next time, we'll hear about the changes that Alfred makes, how he fights off a further Viking invasion, and how he starts a propaganda machine that continues to form our view of him to this day. Until then, everyone, have a genuinely hoopy time. <laughs>